chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Some of you are saying, all right, just two verses, but not so fast. We got, a, <laughs> we got other stuff we'll be looking up to. Have no fear. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Now, Jesus has made it to this last, last week of his life. He has been back in Jerusalem. He has been spending a lot of time at the temple. He has been under attack by a lot of those who, who, who did not like him, who were seeking to destroy him, and Jesus' wisdom had proven too much for them to, to stand up to. He, he left them speechless. They were amazed, at least some of the people there were amazed at what Jesus had said and the way he had responded. And here in Mark chapter 13, Jesus is uh, preparing to leave the temple and he begins to talk to his disciples and begin to say some things and they begin to ask some questions and we will get into that as we go. Now, I've mentioned last week uh, and even earlier today that this is uh, their parallel accounts of this are found in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21. We will certainly reference some of those in the weeks to come as we go through uh, this event and it took place. Uh, Matthew 24 is probably uh, the, the, the account that's, that's most studied than this, but, but they're very similar. There's not much differences uh, in these different accounts of what is taking place. Now, as we study this chapter, it is, it is often brought up when end times uh, events are discussed and eschatology is discussed. That is a difficult topic, and there are really three main views. There are lots of views, and, and, and some of the views kind of split different ways, and not everybody's going to fall into one category, and it doesn't matter if you know the names of these categories. It's not important, but, but I'll tell you what the three, kind of the three main views are as we will discuss these a little bit as we move forward. Uh, one view in reading through this chapter is that uh, almost all of these uh, events that are talked about are going to be future events. And the big fancy name for that is the premillennial dispensational view. And that is the view that most of these things are going to be in the future. And there will be a future end time and Jesus will return and there will be a tribulation. Those are some of the key, key things of that particular view. And uh, we'll discuss these more tonight in our, in, our, in our time for anybody who's interested to learn more about this. That's one view, and so some would read this chapter with that, with that idea in mind, that it's speaking of something that is yet to happen in the future. Another popular view is called the partial preterist view. Now, preterism, uh, the word preterist means in the past. And so the first view uh, would be better referred to as the future view. That is, these things will happen in the future. The preterist view believes that uh, these things happened in the past. Now, there are two views when it comes to preterism. There is what is referred to as a full preterist, which believes that everything in Scripture has already occurred, that every bit of scriptural prophecy has been fulfilled in the past, and there's nothing left to be fulfilled. The uh, other view of preterism is called the partial preterist view, which means that uh, most things in Scripture have been fulfilled, uh, but there are still a few things left to be fulfilled, including the return of Christ. And so there are Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, who hold all of these views. Now, you may hear these and you may think, man, how could any Christian believe this? I've never even heard of those views. Well, 
We'll talk about that more tonight, not to take too much time today. But there are indeed Christians who hold these views and even some other views that vary different uh, slightly from these, that there are genuine Christians that love Jesus Christ, that serve Jesus Christ, but the interpretation of this text is not, it's, it's, there's not a general consensus. There is some disagreement to this text. And so I wanted to point that out to you today before we start Mark chapter 13, because I will try to, at some instances, and not get too caught up in, in all the different views, but on some instances, we will try to look at some of the different views and why some of these different uh, views are held among Christians. So we're just going to barely get into Mark chapter 13 today. So let's pray, and then we will get started. Father God, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for your good word, and I pray that you would help us to learn it, dear Lord. This is a tough, tough chapter for us to consider. God, when we think about end times or we think about prophecy, dear Lord, it is not easy. There's some crazy language and stuff that maybe is hard for us to understand. And, and God, even though in this room there may be differences of opinion as to what, what these chapters and verses mean, dear Lord, do not let us divide or argue with one another about these things, dear Lord. We Hopefully, we all love Jesus Christ and we trust him. And so, dear Lord, on the things that are tough, just help us to be able to agree to disagree, but help us to understand your word as good as we can. God, we want to get it right. I hope that none of us are set on a one view or another, but God, that we are set on learning your word. And God, whatever we believe your word faithfully teaches, let us faithfully follow that. And I pray that as we look at these few verses today that you would help us to understand the significance of the temple, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in us here today. And I pray that you are glorified through these words. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would bless us in these few minutes. In Jesus' name I pray it. Amen. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. As he was going out of the temple complex, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Now, Jesus and the disciples are in the temple complex, and it is indeed a grand place, and it's made with big stones. And the disciples point out to Jesus how grand the temple is. And he says, look what massive stones, what impressive buildings these are. Now, obviously, not just the, the disciples would have been impressed by the temple and the temple complex. It is likely many people in the area were probably impressed by the grandness of that building. And they are pointing out how grand the temple is. But Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Now, what Jesus is predicting is that the temple is going to be destroyed. The building that they were looking at that is so grand was going to be destroyed. And indeed, it was destroyed. History tells us that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and all the stones were torn down just as Jesus said that it would be. When we talk about the temple, though, we have to understand the significance of the temple for the people of God, the Jewish people, the Israelite people, before Jesus came. In the Old Testament, it was the temple 
that God established for the people to offer sacrifices in. Now, it started off as a tabernacle. It was a little tent. There was a certain way that they had to do things, and there were certain animal sacrifices that had to be given for the forgiveness of people's sins. And eventually, uh, Solomon, the son of David, built this grand temple for God. It was a beautiful thing, and the temple sacrifices went there, and there was this really holy place kind of in the middle, the Holy of Holies, and the, the sacrifices for sins would be given on behalf of the people so that they could be atoned for because, like you and I, they sinned. They needed forgiveness of sin. And in the Old Testament, the forgiveness of sin came through the shedding of blood and to keep God's people from being killed because of their sin, from dying because of their sin, a sacrifice was presented on their behalf. It was an animal sacrifice. That's what took place in the temple, animal sacrifices. And that's where the people went before God to present these things was in the temple. And so when Jesus says here that the temple is going to be destroyed, he is pointing his disciples forward to something that is going to be better than the temple. There is going to be a replacement for the temple that was destroyed, that was going to be destroyed. There was going to be something better that was going to come for God's people. Now, we see this language. I know I reference Hebrews a lot. If you have not read it, you need to read it. One day I'm going to preach through it, but I'm holding back because that's, that's going to be something when I preach through that one. So, But I'm, we're, we're going to get to it, Lord willing, one day. But look, you need to read through the book of Hebrews because the author of Hebrews, whoever it was, is writing to Jewish people who want to go back to the old sacrificial system. Now, Jesus had put an end to that, and that's what the book of Hebrews tells us. There was an old way, there was an old covenant, but when Jesus came and gave his life, when he was crucified and resurrected, he was the atonement on our behalf. He was the perfect and ultimate sacrifice, putting an end to all sacrifices once and for all. There was no longer a need for the blood of goats and bulls because it was insufficient to cover our sins perfectly and for eternity. But the blood of the very Son of God, Jesus Christ, was perfectly sufficient to cover our sins both now and forevermore. The temptation of the people in the book of Hebrews is that they wanted to go back to the Old Testament temple sacrificial system. And Hebrews says, don't do it. Jesus has come, there is a better way. What is old is passing away, it says in Hebrews. And indeed, what was old, the temple and the sacrificial system, it was passing away, and it wouldn't be long after those words were written in Hebrews that it did pass away because the temple was destroyed. There was no longer a place to offer sacrifices, and it did not matter because those sacrifices would have done no good. So Jesus is telling his disciples here that this, that this thing that was so important to the, to the people of God in the Old Testament for all these years would soon be destroyed. But it was going to be replaced, or it would be better to say it this, it is going to foreshadow something that is better than what was there. When the old temple is destroyed, when Jesus Christ is crucified and resurrected, the old system is symbolic to point us some, to something better, to a new temple, to a new 
house of God. That's another phrase we see a lot when we talk about the temple in the New Testament, the Old Testament, the house of God. And so when Jesus left the temple this time, he said it's going to be destroyed. But there's a better temple, a temple that's not made by human hands. Now, if you want to flip, and you can flip to some of these or not, it's going to be a lot of them. I'll be glad to give them to you afterwards. But Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 and 38, this happens right before the parallel account in Matthew, which begins in Matthew 24. And right before Jesus made the statement that we just looked at in Mark, in Matthew 24, this is what is said at the end of Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now, what house is he speaking of there? Well, I believe that he's speaking of the temple. Considering that right after this, Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed, I believe that what Jesus is speaking here is he is speaking of the temple. And he says, your house will be left to you desolate. Now, notice he did not say God's house. Now, previously in Scripture, it was referred to as the house of God. God's house should be a house of prayer. My Father's house should be a house of prayer. But you are making it a den of thieves, Jesus said. Before it was God's house. But listen to this language here. He says, your house. Now, I believe that Jesus says this because there is a better house that is coming. The Jewish people were worried about the temple and the old sacrificial system and the old way. And Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I have wanted to gather you into me. I have wanted you to be mine. I have wanted you to follow me. I've done everything I could possibly do to gather you in. But you were not willing to come to me. It was clear that many of God's chosen people had rejected Jesus. He had done everything he could. They were more concerned about the temple and the old system than they were with Jesus. And Jesus here says, your house. And if he's speaking of the temple, he's no longer referring to it as the house of God. He says, this is your house. Now, why would Jesus use such language? Well, I believe Jesus used such language because there was a better house that Jesus was going to talk about and did talk about in his ministry. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in 1 Peter chapter 2, if there is another house, if, 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 if God used to dwell in the temple, if that's where the sacrifices were given, if that was the house of God where God dwells, but that house was destroyed, well, what took its place? Where is the new house of God? Where does God dwell now? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, You yourselves, that is Christians, are li as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, here we see the shift that Peter talks about. Who is the house of God now? It is the people of God. 
We are a spiritual house that God dwells in us. We are a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, there was the temple. The sacrifices were there. There was the high priests that are there. And God was there with the people in the temple. But when Jesus came, all that went away. All that changed. And there is a new house which God dwells in. And that house is you and I. There is no more royal priesthood in the way that it was in the Old Testament because Jesus is our high priest who has offered our sacrifice once and for all. The sacrifice he offered was his very life. There is no more sacrifice to be offered. There is no more temple needed to offer sacrifice because Jesus is our sacrifice. And when we follow him, he dwells in us who are a spiritual house. And so when Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed, when Jesus says to those who rejected him, I leave your house desolate, that's because Jesus was about to dwell in a new house, in a more perfect house, in a better house. We don't have to travel to a building to have a relationship with God. When we hear God's word and follow him, God dwells in us. Praise the Lord. That's good news, right? We don't have to get up and we don't have to get on a plane and go to Jerusalem to a temple for God to dwell with us. We have to accept Jesus Christ, his one and only son who gave his life so that we could be forgiven. And when we do where we are, God is. And where God is, we are. John chapter 14, verse 2. John chapter 14, verse 2. John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. Now, this passage is going to read different if you have a King James Bible, and I don't know if any other translations do it or not, but I, I believe that King James may be the only one that does that. And that is, it says, In my Father's house are many mansions, may be what the King James says or what your translation may say. And that's an unfortunate translation. That is not a... That is not an accurate translation for what the word should be. And I don't know that the, the word used there in the Greek is translated as mansion anywhere else. And I'm not sure exactly why the King James translators chose to use the word mansion there. But a better, more accurate reading of the Greek would be, in my father's house are many dwelling places. Now, here when we see uh, speak of the house of God, the house of God used to be the temple, but now the house of God is his people. And so when we talk about Christians as a whole, we could refer to Christians as a whole as the house of God, uh, but we could also use the term individually, that we are a house of God, that God dwells in us. And so when we see the house of God used in the New Testament, it could, it could be used in an individual sense that we are a house of God, we are being made into a spiritual house, are in a collective sense, as, as all of God's people. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Well, if we are all part of the house of God, and we accept Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit dwells in each of us, 
That is many dwelling places. Now, it's unfortunate that mansions is used there because it may give the illusion that there will be mansions in heaven. Now, perhaps there will be some kind of mansions in heaven or on the new earth, but I do not believe that that's what this text is saying. Now, I know we sang the song, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. I get that. But I don't believe that that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. I believe he's saying... In his Father's house, that is, all of those who are of God are the house of God. We are the house of God. And in the house of God are many dwelling places. Jesus goes on to say even further in John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Same word there. The word home there is the same word that is sometimes translated as mansion or dwelling places in other translations. It's the same place that, that God is going to make his dwelling place, his, his abode with us, that God, that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, are going to make their home with us. Now, I believe that, that this is what Jesus is pointing to when he's talking about the fact that the temple is going to be gone he knows that there is something better coming. There is a better dwelling place coming for God, not made with stones, but a place that is in our very heart and a place that God will be with all of his people. Now, we see similar language used in other places throughout the New Testament. In a few instances, we see Paul spell this out a little more clearly for us. In 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the next, next few verses will be in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, so right there together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary and that the Spirit of God lives in you. Some of your translations may say temple there, that you are God's temple. Now, wait a minute. God used to dwell in, in the temple in Jerusalem, but Jesus said that's going to be destroyed. So where is God going to dwell? Well, Paul tells us very clearly, we are God's temple, and God's Spirit lives in us, those who are Christians. We are the temple of God. He says again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Chapter 6, verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Again, the same language. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. There was a physical temple. Jesus said that temple's going to be gone. How's God going to dwell with his people? He's going to dwell in his people. He's going to dwell in the house of God because in the house of God are many dwelling places. And if we follow God's commands and trust Jesus Christ, he will make a home in us. We are the house of God. The Jewish house of God, the temple that they wanted so desperately to worship God in and to continue to offer animal sacrifices in, Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate because my father's moving into a new house. He's moving into the house of people who want to follow him, who want to follow me, who accept me, who listen to me, and are covered by my blood. 
When we accept Jesus Christ, we are the house of God and God dwells in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. For we are the sanctuary of the living God, as God said. I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, this is a prophecy from the book of Ezekiel in chapter 37, and Paul recognizes that this prophecy that was spoken of in Ezekiel has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that when we accept Jesus Christ and that we are the temple of the living God, God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them. Well, Paul says this has been fulfilled. Paul recognizes this prophecy of Ezekiel as being fulfilled through Jesus Christ and that God dwells with us. We are his temple when we follow Jesus Christ. So when we see Jesus give his life on a cross for us, when we see him sacrifice, when we see his blood shed, he is fulfilling everything that the temple and the sacrificial system was a shadow of. Jesus is everything we see in the Old Testament but perfected. And that is why Jesus told his disciples, this building is going to be torn down. It's going to be left destroyed. Why? There will be no more need for it. Because Jesus was going to dwell with his disciples and with you and I. That is why when Jesus took his last breath, when he was nailed to the cross and gave his life, it tells us in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom, the earthquake and the rocks were split. The curtain in the sanctuary, it separated the temple from the Holy of Holies where the sacrifices were offered on our behalf. When Jesus' life was given and his last breath was taken, the curtain was ripped. It was torn in two. Now, why did that happen? Because the Holy of Holies was no longer necessary. Because Jesus Christ is the Holy of Holies. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. When, who, who ripped the, the, the curtain? It wasn't the Jewish people. It was God who ripped the curtain. Why? Because there is no need to go into a temple any longer and offer any more sacrifice. Because Jesus Christ is the sacrifice and the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus was pointing his disciples toward this. The temple's going to be gone. God affirms there's no longer a need for a temple. I am tearing the curtain down because it is finished in Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled the final sacrifice that needs to be fulfilled. Any other sacrifice after that is pointless. Anybody who is sacrificing anything for the forgiveness of sins after Jesus Christ, woe be unto them because they are trampling underfoot the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ in attempting to gain salvation through the blood of goats and bulls and other animals. When Jesus died on the cross, it was finished. When Jesus died on the cross and we accepted him, he dwells in us. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brother, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain. That is his 
flesh. The author of Hebrews references what we just talked about in Matthew 27. We have boldness to enter into the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. He is the curtain that we enter through, Hebrews says. The curtain is his flesh. There needs to be no curtain reconstructed. The curtain doesn't need to be sewn back together and put up in a temple so that we can go in there and, and our sins be covered because it is covered in Jesus Christ. And so we need to follow Jesus Christ and we need to seek Jesus Christ. And we need to know that he is our one and only sacrifice and that there are forgiveness of sins and no other. And we'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 through 31. So what happens if we reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? What are we to do? Well, the book of Hebrews talks a lot about that. The book of Hebrews is speaking to Jewish people who want to restore the old Jewish system, the temple and the sacrificial system. And the author of Hebrews says, do not do it. Do not seek the temple and sacrifices in the temple, seek Jesus Christ. Because if you abandon Jesus Christ, if you turn from Jesus Christ, woe be unto you. The whole book of Hebrews, he's telling them, do not go back to the old way. Go to Jesus. Do not support the old way. Follow Jesus. And here toward the end of the book, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, he says... For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's a pretty powerful passage. If we deliberately sin after coming to the knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice for our sins. Now, why would he say this? Because they wanted to go back and sacrifice animals again for the forgiveness of their sins. And the author of Hebrews says, do not do it. Do not go back to animal sacrifices. Because if you do that, you have heard the truth. You have heard about Jesus Christ. If you go back to trying to find salvation in any other way, through the sacrificial system, then you are trampling underfoot the sacrifice that God has made through Jesus Christ. You are spitting in the face of God's grace. And if you do that, there will be no more forgiveness of your sins. Why? Because there is no forgiveness of sins in anyone but Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. And he says, if anybody's seeking forgiveness through anything other than Jesus, you have nothing to look forward to but a terrifying judgment from God because vengeance belongs to God. That's pretty clear. 
I think that's pretty clear. There is nobody that we must seek other than Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other. And there will be no salvation in a temple of God because we are the temple of God. Jesus said this temple will be destroyed because Jesus was pointing to something better. And something better is that God dwells with us. Now, I don't know about you, but I hope, I hope today, and I hope maybe in the past, and if you hadn't, I hope you go on and read your Bible, and I hope you see Jesus Christ and you see the truth of his words, and I hope you stand on the truth of Jesus Christ and you follow him. But if you don't, read Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31 a couple times. You better make sure. You better make sure you're not trying to get in on your good works. You better make sure you're not trying to get in on anything else. You better not think that you're going to find salvation in anyone but Jesus Christ because He is the only way to the Father. There is forgiveness in He alone. And when we accept Him, He dwells in us. We are the temple of God. We are God's dwelling place. God makes His home with us. And when Jesus tells his disciples the temple is going to be destroyed, we need not fret over that. They need not fret over that. Nobody needs to fret over that because God has prepared us and has come to live in us. And I hope that you've put your faith in Jesus and he's living in you today. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for your good words, dear Lord. This is good stuff. This is heavy stuff. But God, help us to recognize how you have perfected your plan in Jesus Christ, that everything pointed to him. And let us not miss that, dear Lord. Let us not think that there is some other way for salvation, God. But let us know that it comes through Jesus. God, I pray that if there is one here today that has not followed Jesus, that they would do so, that they would repent. It's simple, dear Lord. It's nothing, nothing special other than just their heart knowing and their heart repenting and, and saying, look, I want to follow you, Lord. I want to accept Jesus, the sacrifice on the cross. God, when we ask you to forgive us, if we confess our sins, your word says that you are faithful to do it. There is no question, God. There's no question today that if there's sin in our life and we ask you about it, you will forgive us if we ask you to forgive us for it, dear Lord. You will do it. God, I pray that you are dwelling in each heart that is here today and each, in each person that's here. But God, if there's one you are not dwelling in, dear Lord, I pray today that they have heard your word, that they have heard of Jesus Christ, and they will respond and repent. And God, I pray that as we continue to study through the book of Mark in chapter 13 and discuss some difficult things that you would let your Holy Spirit Point us to Jesus Christ in all that we do. In Jesus' name I pray it. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's service. To learn more about Jesus, call or text Pastor Shan at 601-657-0180 or email him at shanvn at me.com. You can also visit us at www.enterprisebaptist.church or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Liberty. We hope that you have been blessed by today's service.